Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Gospel of John in uh, chapter 6. And we're looking back at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, we developed this morning's lesson from that. And uh, one person I was reading this morning said, It's interesting to preach this section in John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse, because when you preach it, you're preaching a sermon about a sermon. And there's already a metaphor in the sermon, so you can't even have a metaphor because you'd have a metaphor about Jesus' metaphor. And so basically, we can just kind of come and serve this on a silver platter that th these are the words of Christ. This is what he has to say to us this morning in John chapter 6. And interesting that the other gospel writers, although they include the story of the, the miracle of the feeding of the crowd, but only John records the speech that follows the miracle which develops this idea of Jesus as the bread of life. Look at verses 34 to 36 with me. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Remember here, Jesus is speaking with the people who had just experienced, or at least they've heard about what was just experienced. The majority of them had just experienced the, the feeding of the, we said, probably fifteen to 25,000. And, and now he's just said to them earlier that it, it isn't Moses that brought the bread from heaven in reality, but it's the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And look in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they reply, give us this bread forever. And it's obvious that once again, we're having a, a crowd that has an exercise in missing the point, right? They, they don't understand, again, that Jesus is referring to himself. They're thinking of physical bread. And, you know, to be fair, they're thinking of an unlimited supply of physical bread. Now, I don't know who's carb loading, but I mean, bread. I, I like me some bread. I asked you the other week to think about what is your like favorite, go-to, preferred, life-giving bread in the physical sense. What bread would you want an unlimited supply of? Is it uh, you know buttery Olive Garden breadsticks? Is it uh, HBC Church Foyer bread? <laughs> this is the first church I've ever been to that uh, after service there's just children walking around munching on. <laughs> Just pieces of bread. The children are hungry. For me, it is uh, red lobster cheddar biscuits. Let's go. Maybe it's white bread, wheat bread, rye bread, beer bread, you sinners. Bread is an absolute staple in pretty much uh, anywhere that you go. I'm not sure we always do bread exactly right here, you know, just kind of stacks and stacks of bread in a bag. Some of you have bread machines. We were talking this week about those of us who have been to Israel and staff talking about our trips to Israel and just so much fresh bread kind of all around you. And just like the conversation with Nicodemus and just like the conversation with the woman of Samaria, again, the crowd is missing it. The woman at the well didn't understand that 
Jesus was speaking about spiritual water that comes from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This crowd doesn't understand that Christ is talking about the spiritual bread of eternal life. And so Christ teaches and explains, beginning in verses 35 and 36, you notice his first statement, I am the bread of life. And we've re referenced these before, the, the seven statements in the Gospel of John, these I am statements. And, and these statements have particular significance, especially to these first century Jewish listeners. They know that God revealed himself to Moses with a resounding I am in Exodus chapter 3. And now Jesus is using the same words to describe himself. Leon Morris says to Jewish ears, this I am aroused associations of the divine. For in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the expression is frequently used by God himself. There's little doubt that John's repeated use of this expression is meant to awaken these divine associations. The, fred, the phrase bread of life, as you see it repeated this morning, just simply think bread which provides life. Christ offers, he maintains spiritual life in the same way that bread does for bodily life. He's providing lasting sustenance, lasting fulfillment. And really what's happening in this passage is that the Jews have, have asked Christ for something. They're seeking something material, but Christ offers them himself. And again, the, the bread of life, I am the bread of life, is the first in the series of declarations. And each one repeats Jesus as a fulfillment of mankind's spiritual need. So in verse 35, it says, He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And, and, and these are really parallel analogies. They mean the same thing. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I am the one who will truly fulfill you now and into eternity. Through Christ, God has provided satisfaction. Permanent, lasting satisfaction and fulfillment. And only, only the believer in Christ has this hope. Only God can bring this kind of meaning out of the chaos that is life. And the goal is not to figure out a way through life on your own, but simply to come to the Creator who has it all planned out. The answer is not in the creation, it's in the Creator. And we see it in the seven claims. Let's just run through them quickly, even though we'll, we'll dig into them more as we, as we go. But the seven I am claims... Christ knows that man is in darkness, and so Jesus says in, in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Mankind is alienated from God without access to him. And so in chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. In chapter 11, we're without hope for the afterlife, and so Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. We're lost, we're confused, we're spiritually dead, and so in John 14, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're disconnected. We're fruitless. Not fulfilling the purpose for which God created us. And so in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And in our passage today, we're spiritually starved. Our souls are hungry. And so he is the bread of life. Have you ever heard of the concept of a of a God-shaped hole that's in everyone. This idea that, that every person has a void in their spirit. 
their life that can only be filled by God. Ecclesiastes says something similar when it says that God has set eternity in our hearts. St. Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And what we see in our passage this morning is that only Christ is sufficient to fill this void. It can't be done by our own pursuits. It can't be done by trying to be a good person or trying to climb our way up or, or earn our way to God or through religiosity. Christ's sufficiency means by implication that we are insufficient in and of ourselves. And the Bible says as much. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Even the greatest accomplishments of your lifetime can't truly satisfy you if they're pursued apart from a relationship with God. Solomon warns about this. He says that the expectation of the wicked shall perish. You have these plans, you have these ideas, you're going to pursue this, you're going to do that, you're going to accomplish this, and you have these expectations of, uh, of what's going to happen afterwards and how it's going to make you feel and what it's going to do for you, and it, it just all fades away. Solomon's a perfect example of this, right? Tried to fill his life up with anything and everything that he possibly could. He basically conducted this huge life experiment to try to find fulfillment, to try to find happiness, to try to find meaning and purpose. When I teach this to Ecclesiastes to teenagers, I tell them, look, Solomon invented sex, drugs, and rock and roll as like a lifestyle category. Like this, this was his idea. And I also remind them that uh, he had way better resources to try this than you do. So like everything you're thinking about trying that you think you might find happiness in, it's, it's already been tried and found wanting. Because what does Solomon say at the end of the experiment? Vanity of vanities, what? All is vanity. It's all futile. It's all useless. It's all meaningless. And so unrepentant sinners end up finding that their greatest achievements are a house of cards when considered in light of eternity. Look back at verse 50, uh, 35. rather. What actions are required? If you say, uh, okay, you, you got me. You convinced me. I, I, I got this God-shaped hole. I, I, I'm, I'm empty. I need something, something outside of myself. I, I want to come to Christ. I want this living bread. How do you get it? Well, there's two things that verse 35 says. Number one, come to Christ. And number two, believe. But it's really the same thing. It's just two ways of expressing the same idea. And we saw the same thing. Look back up in verse 29. We saw this last week. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God was to provide and freely offer full salvation through Christ, and our part is faith. It's belief. It's not a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's not be this kind of person. This is what they were looking for. We need a, we need a list. What do we have to do to, to get to God, to be right with God? And he says it's already been done. Simply believe. And this action of belief is described alternately in, in this passage. We'll see this as we go as come believe, eat. It's all saying the same thing. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Have faith in him. Believe that he's the son of God, the one who gave his life to atone for sin. And so we come to him. And when we come to him, then what? 
What, what, what happens? What do we see in the passage? It's so encouraging. Because what we're being told here is that if you believe in him, he fulfills your spiritual needs. He satisfies you. So as I'm pondering this this week and thinking about it, I, I had to ask honestly the question, why does it seem that so many Christians are not living lives just full of satisfaction? Why do Christians often seem restless and unfulfilled? It seems like maybe it's a poor advertisement for what Christ is offering here, doesn't it? And I want to offer a couple of possibilities. First, it's possible that some are simply Christians in name only. That is to say, they're, they're like this crowd. They're, they're following Christ. They're, remember we said air quotes believing, right? They're, they're following Christ, they're believing in Him, but they don't really know Him. They like something about Him. Maybe some today like something about the name Christian, maybe something about going to church. They like the, the community that they enjoy at church or the religious feeling that they get from it or, or whatever it is but they missed Christ. And so they don't have that true inner satisfaction, that thirst, that hunger of the soul hasn't really gone away. For others who maybe really are believers, but they're simply not recognizing, not availing themselves of what they have in Christ. They're pushing the blessings of their salvation into the corner. They're, they're sweeping it under the rug. John MacArthur has a book called Our Sufficiency in Christ. It's all about the blessings and all that we have in, in Christ. And he starts the entire book off with a story about a, a pastor that he knows that was conducting a, a series of meetings in some churches in uh, North and South Carolina. And he's staying in the home of some close friends outside on the, the edge of town. And so he's traveling each night from where he's speaking to where he's staying. And one night he had a, a man give him a, a ride. It, it, things went late into the night and he gave him a ride late at night and when the man dropped him off, he didn't want him to have to wait or stay there any longer. He said, oh, they're expecting me. Don't worry about it. Go, go on your way. Get home. And he went, and the house was locked, and no lights were on. And he knocked on the door, and no one came to the door. It's the middle of winter, freezing cold. He's starting to shiver already. So he knocks on the door a little harder, and pretty soon he's pounding on the door. Pretty soon he's going to all the windows in the house and pounding on the windows and checking the garage door, and and nothing happens. Everyone is dead asleep in the house. Can't find a way to get in. Finally, he says, I'm going to have to walk to the neighbors in the, in the snow and the ice and the freezing cold. He starts walking to the neighbors. He thinks as he's on his way, it might be a bad idea in this part of the country to just show up on someone's property in the middle of the night. Might be a good way to get shot. So he says, ah, instead, I'm going to try to find a payphone. On his way to look for a payphone, he slips and falls into the icy water in the ditch. Now he's soaking and shivering and fearing for his life. Finally, in the distance, he sees the light of a motel. He goes and uses the phone. He calls his friend. He says, please, can you, can you come and get me? The house was locked. I, I couldn't get in. And his friend says, yes, we'll, we'll come and get you. But remember, you have a key in your pocket. I gave it to you earlier so that you'd be able to get in. And there's a point here that Everything that he had been longing for, everything that he had been desiring, the, the comfort and the, the warmth was available to him if he just reached it in his pocket. MacArthur says that true story illustrates the predicament of Christians who try to gain access to God's blessing through human means, 
all the while possessing Christ, who is the key to every spiritual blessing. He alone fulfills the deepest longings of our hearts and supplies every spiritual resource we need. Because believers have in Christ everything that we need. Christ is in us, and we are in him, and we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that abides in us. We are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. MacArthur says, so every Christian is a self-contained treasury of divinely bestowed spiritual affluence. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 reminds us, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. And MacArthur ends by saying, to seek something more is like frantically knocking on a door, seeking what's inside, not realizing you hold the key in your pocket. And so believers, what an incredible promise that in Christ, we thirst no more, we're hungry no more, our soul has been satisfied. And not only can we enjoy these spiritual blessings on a daily basis, but we can manifest them to others and we can tell others about them. Go back then to verse 36. And as you look at verse 36, remember that in verse 30, the crowd had told Jesus that if they saw a sign, they would believe. You ever heard that from anyone? They said, if we see a sign, we believe, which we thought was funny in verse 30 because they literally just saw one of the greatest miracles in all of Scripture, the feeding of this giant crowd as Christ is creating food you know, out of his hands. And here in verse 36, Jesus refutes them by pointing out that they had seen him and they still did not believe. They'd seen him, they'd seen his miracles, they'd heard his teaching, but they were in unbelief, and so Jesus calls it out. These Galileans' unbelief is just like the Judeans. We saw in chapter 5, verse 38, right? You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. They were seeing Jesus. They're literally seeing Jesus with their eyes. He's standing right before them. It's kind of amazing. But that doesn't equate to seeing who Jesus really is spiritually. They didn't believe that he's divine Messiah. Sight and insight are two different things, right? I like S. Lewis Johnson kind of points out, you know, there's a, there's a little edge to Jesus here. Jesus isn't all warm and fuzzy preaching. He says, Jesus at this point is not like modern preachers. They tend to want to compliment the congregation, never say anything bad about them. He talks about how they, you know, we want to make sure everyone comes back next week and everyone brings their offering, right? He says, you wouldn't want to lose anyone. But this is what he says. Our Lord was not that kind of preacher. He preached truth. He did it in the right spirit. And there's a spirit in which you must do that. But he chides them for their malicious rejection of God's offered gift. We've been asking the question as we've gone through the Gospel of John over and over again. What, what will you do with Jesus? Who do you identify with? Who do you see yourself as in this story. Verses 37 to 40 then. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That all 
that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Warren Wearsby talks about this passage in verses 37 to 40. These verses 37 to 40 would certainly pack a punch. He says it contains Jesus' explanation of the process of personal salvation. These are among the most profound words he ever spoke, and we can't hope to plumb their depths completely. He explained that salvation involves both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And you see it. Look at the, look at the statements. The Father gives implies divine election. And then the words, the one who comes. That's human agency. Salvation is divinely appointed, but it's humanly appropriated. So it's a matter of election preceding human response. Let me, let me read to you from the Heritage Bible Church doctrinal statement. I know you've all read it probably daily. Probably recorded yourself and you listen to it as you drive around. It says this, election is an aspect of salvation that is often debated and misunderstood. The doctrine of election is found in Scripture. It lists Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9. It's detailed for us most notably in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. The term election refers to God, God's sovereign will to choose those who would bear his name. Although it's clear in Scripture, it must not overshadow or trump man's responsibility to humbly receive God's free gift. It's clear that God has given human beings the privilege and the responsibility to make choices. It's also clear that man cannot choose God without the prompting of God through his spirit. Election is a beautiful doctrine that should inspire joy and humility within the heart of every believer as he dwells on the fact that a holy and righteous God would choose us. And so you see both of these truths beautifully in this passage. And not only that, but you notice at the end of verse 37, you have these words, just these three words, not cast out. And that is an incredible blessing of the assurance and the, uh, the security that we have in Christ. And really what we're being told here is that the same power of God that elects us sovereignly to salvation keeps us saved, brings us home into eternity. If you have trouble with a lack of assurance, as most Christians do at some time or another, here is a, a text for you. That he will not cast you out. Notice then at, at the end of John chapter 6, verse 40, I will raise him up on the last day. Same thing as the end of verse 39. Not cast out, raise him up. Raise him up on the last day. We're talking about glorification. We're talking about the resurrection to eternal life of everyone who believes. And that's the promise that God guarantees that he will raise us up if we are his. Verses 41 and 42 then, John writes, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, uh, is not this Jesus? They, don't, they didn't say, uh, but I, I'm adding it because they're confused, so I just assume they said, uh. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, 
whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They're a little bit confused. This is little Jesus. We, we know him. We know his parents. And so his claim to have come down out of heaven seemed to them to contradict what they knew about his human origins. But again, they're only thinking in physical terms. If they had known two simple truths, two doctrinal truths that we know, they would have understood. If they had understood and known about the virgin birth and the incarnation, they would have seen that this is consistent with Christ's claim to come down out of heaven. And we know that he came down from heaven because he is the Logos. Turn back to chapter 1. Just a couple of verses in John chapter 1. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. This is the Logos. This is Christ, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word, Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So indeed, Christ has come down from heaven. Jesus Christ, in the glory of heaven, worshipped constantly for who he was, stepped across the stars into Bethlehem to become a man for us. And really, their response in verse 42 of chapter 6 reminds us, Jesus anticipated this. He knew this was coming because remember in John 4, verse 44, he said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. And we've been saying constantly, consistently, that they are unable to make the transition in their thinking from physical things to spiritual things. And so in verse 43, again, Jesus kind of calls them out. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. I say this often, by the way, at home. Time for chores, eat your vegetables, clean your rooms. Do not grumble among yourselves. He says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In order for a person to come to the bread of life, the Father must draw him. Christian, you came to salvation not because you're so much brighter or so much better or so much quicker than those around you. We, we like to kind of talk in these terms after we, we get saved. We, we look at the unbeliever and we think, I don't know what's wrong with them. How can they not see it? It's so plain. It's so clear. Well, sure, now it is. You've had your eyes opened. The Holy Spirit drew you to salvation. But people are hopelessly lost in sin, and no one comes to Jesus without divine assistance. Left to their own devices, no one would seek God, because as a result of the fall, man is totally depraved and without any ability to please God. All men are sinners and enemies of God by nature and choice. And sin separates us from God. No man apart from God has the ability or even the desire to come to God and obtain forgiveness. The Romans Road is a great way to, to share the gospel. But it's interesting that we kind of start out with Romans chapter 3, and it's not super uh, complimentary of the person that we're sharing with, right? you got to always be sure, like, when you're doing it, you, you, like, add yourself in there, too. Like, we, you know, <laughs> right? Because listen to what Romans 3, 10 to 12 says. 
As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And Ephesians 2.1 adds to that, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When you think of Romans chapter 3 and you're sharing with this with someone, the goal is that they would recognize and understand their own sinfulness and their separation from God. But that means that at some point they're going to realize that you're talking about them, or rather Romans 3 is talking about them and saying that they're not righteous, that they don't understand, that they don't seek God, that they've turned aside, that they have become useless. And no one does good, not even one person. And we understand it when we add Ephesians 2, 1, that we're dead, spiritually speaking. And what does a dead person do? Nothing. Dead people can't do anything. And so God has to take the initiative. God has to move. Because man is lost and without hope apart from his sovereign election and the amazing grace of God. And so we see this word here, draw. It's really the word drag. It's used of, of dragging. So this is the... The dragging of God, bringing us to salvation. This is something so much more than provenient grace. This is the effectual call of God. It's actually used, this word is used of the dragging of a net, of a fishing net in John chapter 21 as they haul in their catch. It's used of dragging Paul from the temple in Acts 21. It's used in James 2 of dragging someone into court. So we're talking about this kind of activity, action on God's part to bring us to the point where our eyes are open so we can believe in Christ. And the final phrase of verse 44 just reminds us, again, that Christians are kept of God that saves them, that we're eternally secure in our salvation. Now in the next verses, verses 64, uh, verses 45 rather, chapter 6, verses 45 to 46, we're going to see how God draws his elect to himself. How does he drag us to salvation? It's written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is not about a general call to all mankind, not in this context. And we know that because we can see verses 37 and, and 39. This is about the effectual call. And the effectual call is God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. It's commonly known as the I in the Calvinistic acronym TULIP. This is irresistible grace. And he tells us in this verse, in verse 45, that there are two steps. Step number one, you have to be taught the message, right? The word has to be presented to a person. A person has to hear truth. So away with, you know, this old kind of famous saying of, uh, you know, lifestyle evangelism that, you know, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Well, it is necessary. <laughs> we, we have to hear the message of the gospel. We have to hear truth from God's word to come to salvation. Romans 10, 17 says that, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's exactly what we see here. Secondly, the spirit must do the work of illumination. Unblinding the eyes, opening the mind to understand and embrace spiritual truth. So that a person can grasp and believe the gospel. 
This is God's act with regard to his chosen, to his elect. And so Christ is basically telling the crowd of unbelievers, you, you've never really understood anything from God. If you, if you had learned from God, you would come to me. You would eat the bread. You would see me. You would see the Father. You would believe in me. And again, we're seeing this clear picture of the sovereignty of God in salvation. That God gets all the glory when a sinner repents and believes. The idea of verse 46 is that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who was with the Father. Remember, he came down out of heaven. So if you want to know the Father, go to Jesus. He's the one who can reveal the Father. He's the source of knowledge about God the Father. He is the one mediator between God and man. And so they had this idea that they were close with God, that they were tight with God, that they were pretty religious people. But what they're being taught is that you can't reject the Son and be in right standing with the Father. You can't come to God any other way but through Christ. And so here we are, thousands of years later, and we're in the Gospel of John, and we're learning about the person and work of Christ. We're reading his life and his teaching and reading these words, and we are drawing near to God through him. Verses 47 and 48, then, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Jesus returns again to this message of eternal life. And you have to see this. You have to see this prominence. If there's like one thing that you're going to grab and, and like walk out the door with, I want you to see Jesus' emphasis on life. Because it's over and over and over again. Life, live, not die, raised up, live forever, eternal life. He says, you see the word life in verse 27, 33, 35, 40, 48, 51, 53, just to make sure we understand. No life in yourselves. And again, ending verses 47, verse 54, talking about eternal life, 51 and 58, living forever. And how do you have eternal life? How do you get this spiritual life, this eternal life? It's in the present tense, by the way. So how do you possess eternal life now? Believe. And I have a little bit of a fear as we're going through the Gospel of John, and we kind of keep having this same message over and over. And sometimes I think, well, maybe we kind of speed past this part, or we go to this part, or whatever, and then I think, well... It's the word of God repeating it over and over. So I don't really have the right or the authority to think I can, you know, jump past something. Do you remember the story I told a couple months ago about George Whitfield and how he was doing this series of meetings at a, at a church? And uh, he had gone three nights in a row, and every night he had preached the sermon, you must be born again. And finally, everybody's kind of like, what? What is he doing? And the elders like convened and they brought him in. And they're like, George, uh, why do you keep preaching? You must be born again. And he looked right at the elders and he said, because you must be born again. And so here is Christ. He just keeps on preaching it. He keeps repeating it. When will you believe? 
You say, I, I have believed. Well, then, believer, when will we trust? When will we grab hold with both hands of all that we have in Christ, of the sufficiency that is in him, cast all of our cares, embrace the full satisfaction and sufficiency that is in Christ so that the world can see. And again here, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Verse 32, verse 33, verse 35, verse 41, verse 48. He's using an image here. More than a staple of their diet, this is a rich symbol of, of Jewish life. We don't have time to, to go through everything that, that there is. Rodmacher does a, a great job in his commentary of just talking about what an important part bread played in Israel's worship from Pentecost to the loaves in the temple to daily bread offerings throughout Exodus. And we know that God delivered the Israelites from Egypt and then they're in the wilderness and they're hungry and they're in need of sustaining. And so God sustains them by giving them bread, by giving them manna. Our daughter, Michael, when she was little, she came home from Sunday school and and uh, her mother said, uh, what did you learn in Sunday school? She said, oh, we learned about the Israelites and God led them out of Egypt and they were hungry and in the morning they woke up and there was mayonnaise all over the ground. <laughs> gross, right? <laughs> I'm glad it was manna, not mayonnaise. That would, be, that would be really gross, right? But there's a symbol here that just as the manna came down from heaven, Christ came down from heaven, but... Christ is the, the true bread, verse 32 says, from heaven. The bread which came down from heaven, verse 41. The bread of life, repeated. Symbolically, Jesus is this heavenly manna. This is spiritual, supernatural food given by the Father to those who ask. Tragically, people are rejecting his teaching. Verse 30, verse 31, verse 41, 42, 52, 60. Their hearts are hardened in unbelief. Later in chapter 6, we're going to see them walk away. Verses 49 to 51, Then your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus has been talking about everlasting life and how it comes from him, the bread of life. He goes back to their earlier mention of manna, again to explain this distinction between physical bread and spiritual bread. And the Bible gives some description of manna. So we have a, a, a little bit of a good picture of what we're talking about. But understand that manna appeared six mornings a week all year long for 40 years in sufficient quantity to feed millions of people. That's a pretty incredible provision of God, right? A pretty miraculous provision of God. And compared to Christ, it's nothing. Believing in Jesus, eating the bread of life, this offers permanent victory over death. Manna would sustain you, would, would keep you physically alive for a little while, except eventually, guess what? Everybody died anyway. But his atoning death on the cross is for eternal life. 
And that makes Jesus the real bread of life. Look at verses 52 to 56. And then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So again, in verse 52, they're struggling to grasp spiritual realities. An intense argument breaks out as they struggle to understand what Jesus means. I mean, in what possible sense could Jesus be talking about giving his flesh to eat his food? Certainly not in any you know, proper Old Testament Jewish context that they could imagine. And so Jesus says, uh, oh, I didn't really mean eat my flesh and drink my blood. You know, that was a bad analogy. Let me try a different angle. No, he just doubles down on him. He just keeps saying it. Look at verses 52 to 56. He just keeps saying it over and over. And if they were already arguing and upset and not understanding, I just imagine every time he says it, they're just cringing. You know, it's like a princess bride moment. Stop saying that, right? Jesus is symbolizing the need to accept not only him, but his coming work on the cross. By the metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Can you imagine, again, as John wrote this, that light bulbs are coming on? That, that, that maybe he didn't initially understand this as he was standing and hearing it, but certainly now, as Christ has died and been resurrected and the gospel is going forth and Pentecost has happened and, and John is writing this, he's like, I get it. And certainly it's odd, right? We can have a little bit of sympathy for them. Like, this is a weird thing to say, right? But notice something that I think helps. Notice how closely paralleled verse 54 and verse 40 are. 54 says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, listen, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And verse 40 says, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So verse 54 is just a metaphorical way of saying the same thing as verse 40. And really, this is the, the repeat, repeated key here. Sometimes Christ says, come. Sometimes he says, eat. Sometimes he says, hear. Sometimes he says, see. And it all amounts to believe. Augustine said, believe and you have eaten. A.B. Bruce kind of helps us make the, the connection here. He says, In words dark and mysterious before the event, clear as day after it, the speaker declares the great truth that his death is to be the life of men, that his broken body and shed blood are to be as meat and drink to a perishing world, conferring on all who shall partake of them the gift of immortality. Christ paints a, a graphic but a necessary picture. I don't believe, by the way, that, that he really is referring, although certainly there's a connection, but that he's really referring to the ordinance of communion because that hasn't been instituted yet. And, and more importantly, if this was equated with the Lord's Supper, then it would be saying that everyone who took the bread and the cup would be saved merely by 
participating in the, the physical act and ingesting the elements, you would be saved. And that's certainly not what Christ is saying. He's calling men away from their own devices, away from their own physical activities to a spiritual Savior. Again, notice, for the fourth time, verse 54, uh, verse uh, 39, 40, 44, and 54, and now here, Jesus declares definitively that all who eat the bread of life will be raised up on the last day. All right, lastly, just a few more minutes here, verses 57 to 59. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread, which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. In verse 57, Jesus is just kind of doing a little flow sheet for us, a little flow chart of eternal life. The believer gets life by trusting in Jesus, who gets life and was incarnated by the will of the Father, and the Father is the living God. And so the living God, through the living Son and His death and resurrection, brings life to all who believe. And in verse 58, Jesus just reiterates His teaching. And again, friends, just Christ's love, Christ's compassion compels Him to repeat Again, this message of salvation. Turn to one last verse with me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. And we'll close with this. Second Corinthians 5, 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Jesus, the bread of life, offers his body and his shed blood as payment for your sins, and you simply have to believe. And your trespasses, your sins, will not be counted against you. Your soul will no longer be hungry and thirsty. You'll be filled. You'll be satisfied. And you'll begin at that moment of salvation, eternal life. And believer, don't forget that he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for incredible words about an incredible Savior. What an amazing gift it is. Lord, for us to be able to open our copy of your word and to read the teaching of Christ for us. Father, I pray that we would make application. Lord, if we, if we don't know Christ, that we would come to him for all that he is and for all that he offers and because he is worthy. And Lord, for those of us who know Christ, would you help us to to live like it, to embrace all of these incredible blessings, the assurance of salvation, the, the filling of our soul and, and spirit, the satisfaction that is ours in Christ. And, and through that, Father, we could be such a testimony 
to this city, to the world around us. And we ask that you enable us for all these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.